0: Today, we step into the meat processing side of our beef business. What is the next generation carcass going to look like that defines the processing industry's goal of efficient? I think
1: it's really gonna be targeting that animal that's going to be able to marble, be able to hit that consumer expectation for high quality beef but to be able to do so at a reduced level of external fat.
0: Dr. Scott Howard with Colorado State University is my guest as we talk about what this will look like from the packing industry's perspective, what are the factors driving this model, and what we as ranchers may want to consider on this episode of the Working Ranch Radio Show. Well, hi, everyone, and we welcome you again. It's another episode of the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm your host, Justin Mills, coming to you all the way from the northeast corner of the Cowboy State of Wyoming, and we're glad to have folks all across the country joining us as they do each and every week. Whether you're listening on the radio or whether you've chosen to download it on your podcast provider, we're glad to have you here with us. Well, if the opening intrigued you in terms of the terminology of next-generation carcass, well, today's program is going to be very interesting for you. Dr. Scott Howard, affiliate faculty with Colorado State University, is my guest today as we're going to be talking about that because really what is coming down the line when it comes to what the, uh, the beef processing industry wants to see in terms of helping them to be more efficient, be, be more sustainable, uh, all of those elements that come into play that down in, at some point does affect us as ranchers, and that's really going to be the topic here today of our program. So I'm glad to have Dr. Scott Howard with CSU joining us. As always, the Captain Tim O'Byrne will be by in just a few moments for this week's edition of Tim's Two Cents. And meteorologist Don Day will join us at the very end of the program to talk about our long-term weather outlook for the country. Right now, thank you to the sponsors of the Working Ranch radio show, Gelve Balancer, the smart, reliable, and profitable choice. For more information, go to their website at gelve.org. Well, let's check in now with the Captain Tim O'Byrne, publisher and editor of Working Ranch Magazine for this week's edition of Tim's Two Cents.
2: Hey everybody out there in Working Ranch Radio Land. Justin, last episode you asked folks to let you know what books that you're reading for the summer. Mine is Logan, The Honorable Life and Scandalous Death of a Western Lawman by Jackie Bohr. Now this is all about Sheriff Tom Logan of Tonopah, Nevada rough mining town up there in the central part of the state. And uh, I'll tell you what, the the comings and goings of that crew, it was, I mean, it, it was pretty pretty crazy stuff going on back then. Good read. One little tidbit I caught out of it was kind of intri- very intriguing to me. It was uh, um, Sheriff Logan had to go to another town about, I don't know, 40 miles away and uh, retrieve a, a suspect in a case. And they threw two other... <laughs> not suspects, but I guess detainees. One was a man, uh, I, I forget what his name was, and he he and a, he and a Mrs. So-and-so, now they, these two weren't married, but she certainly appeared to have been married at one point. They stole a horse and buggy at Tonopah in the middle of the night and raced off to this town, and, and that's where they got caught, and they were sent back to face justice. And I got to thinking to myself, what's the story behind those two? I mean, who were they? What were they doing? That's the equivalent of stealing a Camaro today and heading out of Vegas in the middle of the night for Reno. And uh, I just thought that was kind of interesting. Now, on the second note, uh, Justin, fill everybody in on our exciting news. We are back on AM radio. Tell them all about it, Justin. and Have a great show, you guys, and have a great week.
0: All right, thanks, Captain. And yes, a new affiliate we'd like to welcome into Working Ranch Radio Show is 880-KRVN at Lexington, Nebraska. You can listen to it uh, there in the Cornhusker State on Saturdays at noon, Sundays at 4 p.m. We appreciate them joining us here again, 880-KRVN. And as always, you can also listen through any podcast provider out there or also on Rural Radio, Channel 147, Sirius XM, as it airs Saturday and Sundays at 12 noon Eastern. We'll stay with us. When we come back, we're going to talk about What does next generation carcass mean? Well, you'll find out when we return on the Working Ranch Radio Show. Starting off in the right direction is essential to gaining an advantage later when you go to market your calves. And I have proof that the right direction is with Sim Angus sired calves. A 2020 study by K-State showed that Sim Angus sired steer calves earn more at sale time than all other breed identified sire groups with at least 50 lots represented on superior livestock's 2020 summer sales the proof's right there for low risk high potential calves with earning potential be confident that sim genetics will give you more per head period stand strong simmental and we welcome you back here to the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm Justin Mills. As we head now into our featured interview today, we're talking a little bit about the the meat industry here, uh, as we always do here, focused more with the, the uh, us as ranchers in mind. And, and today, my guest is Dr. Scott Howard. He's affiliate faculty with Colorado State University. And uh, Scott, glad to have you here joining us on our program here today.
1: Absolutely. Very happy to be here and uh, very happy to uh, get to visit with you and your, uh, your audience about the, uh, the industry.
0: Well, we're, we're going to get into the details of you have a lot of experience, a lot of knowledge about the meat industry uh, as it pertains to uh, the final outcome, the, out, the product that, that goes out to the consumer out there and what that entails to get it to that point. But before we get into some of those questions, first, give us a little background about you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Uh, I, I sure appreciate being here. And, uh, you know, I grew up in, uh, in southern Wisconsin on a small uh, seed stock Angus, Angus cattle operation and kind of got my feet wet to the, the beef industry through, uh, through that activity um selling some bulls and showing some cattle along the way and that led through uh through to some judging programs that took me to Colorado State um you know a little bit a little bit south of Laramie but I found my <laughs> way out west and uh, around some cattle that were uh, were a little more uh, beef oriented as opposed to the black and white ones back home but um in any case I ended up at Colorado State and uh started uh again through the meat judging program, getting involved with the, uh, the meat industry. And that led me to a few internships along the way. And eventually I ended up completing a graduate program there at Colorado State, uh, primarily focused on beef quality, uh, growth and development, and uh, some, some topics associated with uh, carcass yield and uh, value, uh, value uh, valuation. So mm-hmm. um, from there, I went to work with uh, Cargill Um, in a research and development capacity and spent two years in in that role, focused on ground beef production and carcass yields, then on through to another six years in supply chain, um, focused more so on our primary plant running running plans and conditions. And then uh, currently, um, in addition to my roles with Colorado State, I function as a director of operations for uh, Meyer Natural based in Loveland, Colorado. So Mm -hmm. A little bit of a whirlwind to take me from uh, the Midwest to uh, Colorado, but um, have gotten to meet a lot of great people along the way, and I'm excited to uh, talk with your audience here today.
0: Well, we're glad to have you here, as I said before. Scott, when you and I, uh, a couple weeks ago, or uh, it's been about three weeks ago, we were on a panel uh, discussion together uh, for the Style Conference down in Oklahoma City, and... Um, really, want, as as I listened to your talk there, and I, I didn't get the opportunity to listen to the entire thing, but for the most part of it there, and I and I I feel sometimes that for us here in the as as us as ranchers, it's good for us to know what down the chain looks like. And I've had other guests on, we've talked about that, but it's always good to come back and and talk about some elements of this. We are seeing the the idea of you know smaller processing plants or or rancher owned processing plants becoming a little bit more popular out there. And I think it's important for us as ranchers to know, you know, look down into that a little bit. And so from your perspective, we all are raising, starting with the product, you know, from the grassroots level. And so from from your perspective, when we look at the type and the kind of cattle that are out there, we really are trying to come up with cattle that are efficient out there. So from your perspective, what does that look like uh, for, for for that efficient a carcass and and what is starting? What's the start point of that for us as ranchers look like?
1: Yeah, you know, I think that's a great question, and I think it's uh, it's all the more relevant because you you have heard a lot in the the live side of production around uh, efficiency related to average daily gain, efficient growth of the animal, those types of things. Um, and as we stop and think about it now on the uh, the finished product side, if you will, or or in the beef, um, efficiency really is is still a great word to define it. But um, the way that I like to think of it is is moving more towards an efficient model of producing high quality beef that is we've we've reached a point in the industry where clearly we've done a tremendous job of selecting for marbling selecting for high quality cattle selecting for cattle that really perform to meet consumer demands but the next generation of that in my mind is really moving towards the type of animal that can do that but do so at a reduced level of external fat If we look at the industry today we're seeing a lot of very big heavy carcasses that are also carrying a lot of cover and in doing so we're producing a lot of a lot of essentially i'm not going to call it waste because there is a use for tallow but um, it's certainly a type of carcass that requires more trimming it requires more labor labor it requires more resources at the plant to actually make that finished product um, that we're targeting so I think as we really move forward in the industry um, and in particular start looking for uh, those types and kinds of genetics that are going to begin with the end in mind, I think it's really going to be targeting that animal that's going to be able to marble, be able to hit that consumer expectation for high quality beef, but to be able to do so at a reduced level of external fat. And I know it may sound a bit like we're chasing unicorns, if you will, when you you hear, well, let's let's create marbling without external fat. But the reality is there have been cattle out in the industry for quite a while that have been high marbling, low fat types of cattle. Um, we, We just need to start seeking them out more so. Um, I, I guess to me, as we look at the challenges found in the industry, but still also producing a high quality beef product, that one is just a really top of mind type of yeah. challenge um, when, when I think about the industry today.
0: You know, and, and and as you talk about that, the thought that comes to my mind just a little bit here, when you talk about efficiency there, we're talking about efficiency of that final in the beef, uh, uh, you know, carcass that, that's out there. For me as a rancher here, when I think of efficient, well, I want an animal that's going to be efficient from a feed perspective and, and, and do what needs to be done on as little cost as possible. Is that when you say that's the unicorn animal that we're, is that what we're talking about here? Or, or are the are we talking two different animals or can this be the same animal?
1: I, I think it can be the same animal or or maybe I should say it can be the same model and what i mean by that is i think in the industry today we have gotten a little bit little bit seduced by the idea of finding the type of animal that can be everything to everybody and what what i mean by that is i, I understand that we all need to have uh, cattle that can perform in the feed yard but also hopefully produce some replacement females along the way but with that being being said, uh, there's nothing wrong with having cattle out there that we know are a bit more terminally oriented, or we know are a bit more maternally oriented. And mm-hmm. if you really look back at the history of our breeding system, um, the foundation of the industry has really, really been been driven by that type of an approach. And as we've maybe moved a little bit away from that and more towards um, cattle that are trying to do multiple things. Um, it, it, I think that's where we started to run into some potential challenges. So, I, I guess to me, I, I certainly recognize and appreciate the need for ranchers um, such as yourself and your listeners to be able to have that high efficiency, low input type of female that gets bred back each year and is able to have a calf. But, you know, on the other side of the coin, is there a mating that can go on to that female that really focuses on some of those terminal traits? Um, that deposition of marbling, that efficient lean gain, those types of things that really target that uh, that need for the packer to have a high highly lean, highly marbled carcass with a lot of red meat to put in a box. So no doubt it's a challenge, but I think it's something that as, uh, as breeders uh, we should all be willing to approach and and try and tackle because it's it's no doubt the future of where we need to go for efficient resource management all the way through the production system
0: mm-hmm. when we're in this time of the year where we're actually past the spring of the year and and just you know ways out from the fall when we'll, when the bull season uh, sale season will start to pick up a little bit but that's the time of the year where you know there's probably a little bit more focus looking at okay what 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 are the kind of genetics that we're going to be looking at in the cattle for the coming for the next calf crop or what direction we're going to be going when we and i think this came up in that discussion we talked a little bit about this in that style this panel discussion i felt like there was some discussion about this and some of the focus that had been taking place um, and and we look at some of these numbers that are more terminal like a like a ribeye or a or a marbling factor or things like that from your perspective when we talk about looking in and focusing on the type and the kind of cattle What's your thoughts? I guess when we look at these EPDs, that we should be focusing on.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think it's uh, it, for for one. I'll start with the fact that no doubt carcass traits are are a challenge to select for, and and what I mean by that is it takes a very dedicated effort by a seed stock producer to start amassing carcass data on a large scale Um, obviously ultrasound has been a a tool that um, the industry has used for a long time but at the end of the day that is a predictor of um, that ultimate carcass performance Um, really putting those cattle on the rail is where the rubber meets the road and no doubt it takes a lot of concerted effort to get contemporary groups together to do that so um, i think there is definitely a premium Um, for uh, seed stock producers who are really making a concerted effort to tie their genetics to actual carcass data and uh, really understand those things as far as taking the next step beyond just ultrasounding their bulls. So um, that may be a little bit more of a high level statement, but getting more in the weeds. um, Certainly marbling is always going to be a priority. Um, No doubt there is always going to be a reward for highly marbled cattle in in our industry. Our consumers continue to tell us that marbling is important. But that being said, um, in my mind, we've, we've selected fairly hard for marbling and gotten to a point where we really need to start shifting gears and seeing what we can tie in there with it. And those things to me are things like marbling at a slightly reduced level of fat thickness. So a bull that might be a little bit lower fat in addition to having a higher marbling score. One other one that I know has received quite a bit of attention and is a little bit sensitive, especially to the ranching groups, just because again, it does does encourage selection for larger animals, but carcass weight is another one that's out there. And at the end of the day, um, any metric aside, the best way to add saleable product to an animal is to make them bigger and um, I'm certainly not advocating that we start putting a bunch of elephants out on our pastures (laughs) or anything like that because there's countless problems that come from that but Again, making sure that we can find that animal that's gonna produce that 900 pound carcass, which might mean that it is a 1,450 or 1,500 pound finished steer. Um, you know, we have we have some concerns around portion size and th- some things like that, no doubt. But at the packing level, um, we also have concerns around the total number of pounds that we're gonna put in a box per man hour. And the simple truth is that if we run an average carcass weight of 900 pounds at 350 head an hour versus say an 800 pound or 800 pound carcass at 350 a head chain speed um you're going to put more saleable product in the box with the heavier carcasses so um again i guess to me if i were to if i were to kind of put them in order i'd say a combination of marbling and fat thickness and then tying in some some hot carcass weight to that Mm -hmm. and uh I know I omitted one <laughs> that's also popular on the radar in ribeye area so yeah. I'll maybe pause and see if you've got questions and okay. we can talk a little yeah. bit more about that
0: you bet my guest today Dr. Scott Howard with uh, Colorado State University we're talking about just kind of some some of details about the the meat side of the industry that we as ranchers don't always really have a good grasp on and he's kind of knows the insides of this business of that side of the business quite a bit we're going to continue when we come back here with more we We've got two more segments where we're going to visit, and we still have a lot to talk about. Stay with us. You're listening to The Working Ranch Radio Show.
2: Whoa. Herefords are the efficiency experts for a reason. In crossbreeding systems, Herefords boost pregnancy rates by 7% and add $30 per head in feed yard profitability. And Hereford genetics bring unrivaled hybrid vigor, longevity, and disposition Now that'll stop you in your tracks. Come home to Hereford for more pounds, more calves, and more profit. Visit hereford.org for a sale near you.
0: And welcome back to the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm Justin Mills. My guest today, Dr. Scott Howard, affiliate faculty with Colorado State University. As we are talking uh, more in depth about the beef side of our industry, something that uh, we as ranchers don't really have maybe as much firsthand knowledge. Now we generally know some of this stuff, but we were talking in the first segment. If you missed it, we were talking kind of about the types and kinds of cattle that uh, that they're looking for from the from the packing side. Scott, right as we headed into break, two things that we were we were starting to cover and and one was one of those factors we were talking EPDs when one of the elements in that is of course ribeye let's let's hit that real quick and then I and I've got another question to head into our next subject on that so let's let's quickly recap on that on the ribeye EPD.
1: Yeah, just just real quickly. I mean, ribeye area is obviously a, a measure that we're all familiar with, and again, as part of the uh, the ultrasound measures that we uh, we hit on a bit earlier, I, I know it's one that becomes very top of mind for producers because it's something that that we see in the bulls that we ultrasound and we we see hanging on the hook, and and no doubt it's important. It's part of the uh, the USDA yield grade equation, and if you're selling cattle on a grid. That yield grade is going to be part of that, but um, you know, for me, the reason why I I would prioritize some of the things that I did in front of that ribeye area um, in the marbling, carcass weight, and external fat um, EPDs is that the the truth is that science would tell us that ribeye area contributes the least of the the overall variation and cutability of that carcass. Um, of the variables that are in the yield grade equation, so um, ultimately it's going to contribute somewhere between five and ten percent of the variation that we see in saleable yield um, within that within that carcass. So again, it's it's one of those variables that was I, I hate to say the best that we had available to us at the time, mm-hmm. but when the yield grade equation was developed, it. it kind of was that. It was an indicator of muscling that was easily measured relative to the other things that we were doing. And based on the anatomical location of the carcass, um, it was readily accessible yeah. to us. So mm-hmm. um, is is it terrible? Um, certainly not. Does it contribute some variation in, in cutability? Absolutely. Um, but I think the real question is, and maybe the challenge for us as a meat industry and and even on up through the uh the levels of uh of usda is really what can we do to enhance that that yield grade equation is there a better predictor out there and that's a that's really yeah. a i'll say it's an even more than million dollar type of question mm-hmm. because it's going to take a lot of very intelligent folks getting their heads together and uh really digging into that one, and it's going to take a lot of collaborative effort between government, academia, and industry partners to uh, to address it. But I think, again, it's something that certainly is, is warranted in the years ahead, ahead and something that the industry really deserves to help accurately relay a true measure of uh, of cutability with relation to these cattle so Mm -hmm. um, a a lot of work to be done there but just uh, wanted to make sure that we uh, we address that as kind of that fourth component of uh, of cutability
0: and as you answered that question you actually brought up another topic that I, I let's let's hit this real quick before we get into labor the subject that I have and this yield grade as you said are there more accurate methods out there
1: Yeah, I mean, so in a purely academic sense, uh, the answer is yes. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and again, I want to be clear that yield grading is still directionally very accurate. Is a yield grade one higher cutability than a yield grade five? Absolutely. Um, Is a yield grade three higher cutability than a yield grade four? 100%. To me, it's really when we start getting into the weeds and the minutia Mm -hmm. of determining, okay, the differences between a yield grade 3.2 and a yield grade 3.7, really what's going on directionally in there. And again, from a purely academic setting, um, there are some pretty advanced technologies that have been applied to um, a lot of other species in fact, Mm -hmm. um, such as MRI applied to porcine carcasses or, or pigs that have shown that they can accurately predict To the 100% lean value of that carcass extremely, extremely uh, precisely. Um, That being said, X-ray is another one that's Mm -hmm. out there that we know we can measure the lean content of beef trimmings with an extreme level of accuracy using X-ray. So, again, the technologies are certainly there. Um, it's it's really, like I said, getting together that collaborative approach of industry, academia, and government to really find, find the one that we feel is most appropriate, the most accurate, the most precise, and the most repeatable to develop um, yeah. the right message that we would need to send back to our producers.
0: Yeah all right let's get into you touched on it a little bit ago uh and started down that road i think in our first segment with you here let's let's continue down this because one of the things that you were talking about there as you were referencing uh maybe looking at something that could produce a higher carcass weight which is a little contrary to you know to maybe us or some of us as ranchers because i'm like i'm thinking i'm not wanting big and you mentioned that but you're also talking about from the from the meat packing side of things things there's a labor element of that that makes a lot of sense in the fact that how much meat can they process on on a you know on a per hour or per dollar type of a deal so let's let's kind of go back to that and and let's let's cover that subject again
2: yeah
1: so a couple couple things on the labor topic um you know the end of the day the packing business is a people business and um we can put all the technology that we want to in these facilities but as as the last couple of years have really painfully shown us um if we don't have people we're we're pretty much dead in the water yeah and um you know there's there's really two two approaches to that comment or some of the, the things that i've hit on so far um one being the level of excess fat in these cattle and the the simple truth is that um the the move in the in the industry has been from a more commodity style cut to a further trimmed more block ready item that is a retailer or even a food service person is not going to want to open up and do a lot of lot of knife work on a box of meat that they purchased from a commercial packing plant so that said the the demand on these packing facilities today is for the removal of really almost all of the fat on the carcass Mm -hmm. again the the amount of cuts that are going out the door today that are merchandised with either an eighth or a quarter of an inch of fat is is really exponentially higher than it was several decades ago and what that means is there's a lot more knife work going on there's a lot more uh, people allocated to trimming activities and those types of things that said if we're sending in cattle with excess levels of fat, um, it's just all the more labor that has to go into that process. Additionally, that's a lot of fat that we're also paying for um, at the packing level to get cold. Um, that that fat comes in at, 101.5, and it takes a lot of energy to get that product cooled down. So, not only are we burning resources from a labor standpoint, but we're also burning resources from a from a yeah. truly energy savings type of standpoint. So, um, that's that's really one one key point. The other would be related more towards the uh, the carcass weight topic and the and the cut size. And no doubt, we have made these cattle plenty big. Um, But that said, we certainly need them big and high cutability. Um, The reality is that the difference between running carcasses that have an average weight of 800 pounds and those that have an average weight of 900 pounds is is really insignificant at a commercial level. That said, uh, if we're going to put an extra, let's say, 50 pounds per head in a box on those heavier carcasses, That means that we're spreading our costs out over a significantly larger, larger amount of saleable product. So um, there's really, there really is a demand for some larger cuts, larger cattle at the packing sector so that we can spread our costs out over more total pounds of saleable product. So just another another topic to keep in mind as we consider how we keep the industry efficient and how we mm-hmm. most efficiently utilize the man hours that we do have at our disposal.
0: You bet. Dr. Scott Howard with Colorado State University is my guest today. We've got one more segment and we're going to talk a little bit uh, coming up next. We're going to expand a little bit more about these types of cattle carcass composition by cattle type and then also get into some of the elements within the packing industry that they're, that they're focused on that are some of their value elements to their industry as well as some of their cost centers as well we're going to continue when we come back on the working ranch radio show living in the country means working in the country and that calls for a tough tractor Well, Bobcat has 15 models in its compact tractor lineup from 21 to 58 horsepower. With the help of your local Bobcat dealer, you'll find a perfect match for your property and to-do list. Get a look at all the different models at Bobcat.com, and while you're there, use the build and quote tool to design your ideal machine. Get yourself one tough tractor from one tough animal. Bobcat. Visit Bobcat.com. And welcome back to the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm Justin Mills. My guest today, Dr. Scott Howard, with Colorado State University. As we have been talking about the uh, beef side of our industry here, and we were talking before the break about just uh, you know r- you know some of the elements in that that we don't always think about as far as the the type of and kind of cattle that come into those places and and what they're looking at from an efficient standpoint and and what that means to them. Scott, I want to talk next about you were you were talking about heavier carcass weight that, from a labor standpoint, and something that doesn't come in with a lot of fat on it, from a chilling cost saving standpoint. Just a lot of elements there that we don't really understand probably or think about as ranchers. So my question now would be, what is this optimal carcass? weight or or composition that we need to be that we should maybe try to target
1: yeah absolutely absolutely i I think the one the one big thing that i'm going to throw out there is a a precursor to the to answering that question right is that there is there's a ton of variation in our industry today right Mm -hmm. just based on geography uh cattle supply cattle genetics all of those types of things and and we know that that's always going to be true. Um, you know, climate dictates changes. Yeah. Uh, simple geography does as well. So. We know that we've got a, a population of, of British slash continental cattle that we would refer to as our, our traditional types of beef breeds. Um, but we also have two other very, very sizable populations in dairy and dairy crossbred type cattle and also cattle of, of Mexican origin. So, um, again, each of those brings to the table a, a slightly different composition that's going to dictate different different end goals in mind. Um, you know, that said, if you, if you really hold my feet to the fire and say, well, what's the target? Well, mm-hmm. um, you know, speaking to a, a British or continental influence type calf, if we can find that calf out there that can be 4 tenths to 5 tenths of, of an inch of external fat hit that choice or above marbling score, and do so at a carcass weight of 900 to 950 pounds, that's sure checking a lot of the boxes. Now, if I translate that back to live weight, um, again, we're talking about something that's gonna be a shade over 1400 to maybe 1500 pounds uh, live based on a 63 and percent dressing percentage. So again, we, mm-hmm. we aren't, aren't saying that we want elephants by any stretch of the imagination, but we definitely do want some cattle that have some size have plenty of red meat on them, still hit those quality marks that we talked about, but more so are contributing to the uh, the productivity of that packing plant in terms of being high cutability, high quality types of carcasses. Mm-hmm.
0: So that leads me to this question, because as we have talked about this, if there's other ranchers like myself listening out there, you're probably thinking, okay, this is all good and fine, that you, what you're telling me, but am I going to get paid for this?
1: Yeah. And that's a, that's a great question. And I think the simple answer is, is, is it depends on, on how you're marketing your cattle, right? Um, You know, anytime we start talking about retained ownership, obviously that comes with an inherently higher, higher level of risk. Mm -hmm. And from a purely economic standpoint, um, you know, if, if you look at it, most of the time you have to find value in the data that you're getting back off of those cattle to really, uh, to really dictate taking that level of risk. But that being said, um, if you are confident in those genetics, um, it, it may pay. Mm-hmm. Um, so all said and done, um, I think it depends on how you're marketing your cattle. It depends on how much information you're able to get back off of the folks that may be downstream from you. And again, the end of the day, it is it is a risky business to retain that ownership, to get that information, but um, it may be something that you you wanna pursue if if you feel it's appropriate and you're breeding the right type of cattle to capitalize on either a dressing percentage advantage that might be there by selling them in the beef or a yield and quality advantage that might be there by putting them on a grid. So. A lot of lot of questions to be answered, though there, and I'm I'm not going to say that there's any one perfect fit for uh, for everyone in the industry. I think the biggest biggest advice that I would give to your listeners is just that. Um, again, you need to weigh the weigh the cost benefit of the whole deal and understand that you are taking risk by continuing um, that retained ownership through that model um, and. Again, you need to be able to find ways to mitigate that, whether that be through genetic selection, placing value back in the data that you're getting, or some other means. Mm-hmm.
0: Before we get into the next topic here, the question I was thinking of as you, were, as you were answering that was, how does the program cattle, and there's just a lot more popularity in the, in the types of programs, the variety of programs that are out there. How does all of that fit uh, with what we've talked about here today, with these programs,
1: yeah, that's a that's a great question, and really, that's a that's an asterisk that probably goes along with a lot of what I've said, right? You know, we've been talking pretty pretty generically yeah. about commodity beef and production of high quality, high cutability type cattle. But that being said, as we've seen these these niches start to pop up or develop, um, you know, natural beef, uh, farm to fork, whatever mm-hmm. it may be. No doubt, there are going to be different things for different programs that are going to hit the mark. Um, you know, if we look at the mo- one of the more su- or some of the more successful branded beef programs out there, most of them come with some pretty stringent carcass requirements. And that said, those are geared around exactly what their consumers want. So. Again, if you as a producer are, are aligned or targeting one of those grids, some of the things that I may have said may be totally different. Mm-hmm. And if you're in a grid that rewards you for significantly higher quality cattle and is less of a, less focused on cutability, it, it may be a totally different ball of wax for you. So um, I think, again, it, it just goes back to our, our comments from the get-go that when we begin with the end in mind, we, we really need to make sure we're targeting um, what, we, what we need to do as far as a producer to approach that end goal and what that end goal may be. And it might not be the same for everybody out there.
0: Yeah, no. And I think your your comment there, beginning with the end in mind, is a great way to look at that because I think this topic here today wasn't to to put everybody in a shoebox here and say, this is how you got to do it. I think it's important to understand this is the dynamics that we are seeing in in the packing industry. And I think it's, it's a good thing to understand that knowing that there are some varieties and we have cattle of all different types and kinds out there, uh, for, for various reasons F- final subject here that i want to get into and that is uh looking a little bit more in depth in the packing industry itself and some of the things as ranchers we maybe don't always see is things that are value drivers for them as packers the things that are also their cost centers what are their biggest cost things that are that they have to focus on that we don't understand so let's hit let's go into that subject if we can
1: yeah, absolutely. And I, I think I, I've hopefully hit on a hit on a large part of, you know, the, the cutability aspect of mm-hmm. things that are a huge driver of value in the packing sector. Um, I think we all, all hear value and we kind of instantly think quality grade and, and targeting that USDA prime carcass. Um, but just need to understand that those high, high cutability cattle definitely have a place and are always going to drive value in that packing sector. Um, now that said, if we switch gears a bit and start talking about costs, mm-hmm. um, you know, again, I, I made the comment earlier, but this is a people business and labor is is always gonna be at the top of that list as far as as not just a cost, but as a concern, right? Yeah. Um, when we consider how many people it takes just to keep a plant going, keep the lights on, if you will, um, you know, I can throw some round numbers at you, but we're talking in a large-scale facility, maybe a thousand people per shift, and we're averaging um, a, a, a wage that's in the mid 20s to pay those folks. So um, we also have an additional crew that's going to come in each night for cleanup. Um, you know, if you want to break it down a bit and start looking at what does uh, what does downtime cost us when we when we have it, just based on the cost of labor, you're you're going to be somewhere in the in the 150 to 250 dollars a minute range before we even take into account the value of the cattle. So, um, no doubt, those people are, are not just um, not just uh, a cost center, but extremely important to the entirety of the packing industry, and mm-hmm. and that critical to uh, making that plant run. Mm-hmm. If we get into some of the the more uh, physical assets, or if you will, um, packaging is another huge one. Um, it's it's something that we don't really think about real frequently, but in a large scale commercial plant, we're going to produce somewhere between eight to ten boxes per head. Um, each of those boxes is going to be about thirty cents per box, and within that box, there's going to be anywhere from four to eight bags. Each of those bags bags might range between a dime to a dollar a bag. Um, long and the short of it, you can you can pencil the math out however you like, but um, there's a good 10 to $12 ahead there. And just packaging cost, mm-hmm. um, cold storage and transportation is another one. I think we've all seen fuel prices and, yeah. um, that hits the packing industry too. Um, we're, we're burning diesel fuel to, uh, to move loads and uh, cold storage is another one that's at a premium. Mm-hmm. So no doubt there's a, there's a lot of things to consider. Um, I think one of the other things that I, I like to make sure that, um, audiences like this are aware of as well is, is uh, the value of rendering. Um, you know, the things beyond the beef, if you will, that are coming out of that carcass that are part of the value proposition are just so extremely important. Um, you can look up the uh, the drop credit that USDA reports and they'll show you, you know, a couple weeks ago, it was $13, a hundred live weight. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it's a sizable contribution. And if you start considering some facilities that might not have the ability to take advantage of all of those uh, those rendering credits because of some of the limitations, um, that can be potentially a huge, huge value destruction to uh, the animals that they're processing there.
0: Yeah. Final question, Scott, and that is, we're, we're seeing a lot more processing facilities coming online or planning to come online, and, and I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna downplay any of that we've seen. A lot of ranches start their own to maybe smaller uh, local, local or regional type plants looking at uh, coming online or will be coming online as we start to see this expansion in our packing industry, what's your general thoughts of that?
1: You know, I think it it goes back to uh, that, that comment that we talked about in terms of, uh, you know, we we can't shoebox anyone. We can't shoe box anyone in saying that here's the type of cattle that are going to work. And here's the type of cattle that are going to be profitable, profitable versus those that won't be. Um, That said, um, you know, I think it's something that if you're going to venture down that road, it's, it's the same concept as retained ownership and putting cattle on a grid. It comes with an inherently higher level of risk. And when you start owning the asset, um, there is an astronomically higher level of risk that comes along with that. So things like drop credit, rendering, all of those value added items that happen beyond the beef, become exponentially more important in those situations so I think before before I would advocate for anyone to, to bite bite off that type of complexity you really have to get get in the weeds and pencil out all of the things that are going to contribute to your bottom line and all of those costs that are going to be be pulling away from it so is there a need for additional shackle space out there in certain areas of the the country. I think it's safe to say there is. Mm-hmm. Does that need to be another 5,000 head a day, a day plant? Maybe not. Um, but could it be a, another um, local harvest situation that offers an outlet to a group of producers that are able to then market a farm to fork situation? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So again, I, I think my take home message there is that you just have to very carefully weigh the, uh, the costs and the benefits and understand that it's not gonna be a one size fits all if you build it, they will come type of situation.
0: Yeah, fair enough. No, I think that's a fair assessment on that as well. So, Scott, that's about all we have time for. I do appreciate you joining. We covered a lot of topics today.
1: We, we did. <laughs> hopefully hopefully we didn't get, get too far in the weeds on anything, but uh, certainly happy to get to visit with you all.
0: You bet. Well, again, on on behalf of all of us here at Working Range Radio, thanks for joining us here today.
1: Thank you very much, Justin. Have a good
0: one. And again that was Dr. Scott Howard affiliate faculty with Colorado State University our guest here today on our program. We'll stay with us coming up next meteorologist Don Day will join us as we'll take a look at what the long-term weather is going to look like across the country for the latter part of July and into August when we return on the Working Ranch Radio show. For commercial cow calf producers, crossbreeding with Galve and Balancer is the smart, reliable, and profitable choice. Galve and Balancer females offer maternal superiority through increased fertility, greater longevity, and more pounds of calf weaned per cow exposed. In the feed yard, Balancer cattle can offer increased performance, improve feed efficiency, and have excellent carcass merit. Balancers add the pounds, make the grade, and deliver the value. Galve and Balancer, the smart, reliable, and profitable choice. For more information, go to Galvate.org. And welcome back to the Working Ranch Radio Show. Justin Mills here as we're joined now by meteorologist Don Day with a look at our long-term weather. And uh, it wouldn't be summer, Don, of course, if we didn't have extreme weather in all parts of the country, which was what we have definitely seen for the last couple of weeks. There's no question to that. But as we look here towards the middle, looking long-term-wise for across the country, you've kind of pegged around the 20th of this month as kind of a, a time frame that's going to see some weather changes across the country and i want you to expand a little bit on that
3: yeah if we were to rewind over the last three weeks or so, three or four weeks, uh, starting in early June up to here over recent times. We we saw an early summer monsoon pattern developing in Arizona, New Mexico, parts of Colorado, where those areas have finally been able to see some really beneficial precipitation really up to the last few days. Those areas still have gotten some rain, Um, but there's going to be a little bit of a shift in the weather pattern, especially in the central and western United States, where we're going to see some hot weather and drier weather developing for a while as uh, high pressure, which has been centered over Oklahoma, North air, Northern areas of Texas is going to shift towards the great basin states. And what that'll do is bring up temperatures in the West. It's also going to cut off that moisture supply for a little bit coming up out of the Southwestern United States. And there will be the focus of rain will kind of shift out of those Southern areas. There'll still be some showers and thunderstorms, but not as extensive. And we're gonna see a shift of some better rain chances across the Northern Plains. That would be Montana, the Dakotas, Minnesota, Wisconsin, and parts of the Northern and Western Corn Belt, which is good for those areas Mm -hmm. to pick up some precipitation. But in this period of time where it does get warmer and drier in the West, uh, that is certainly gonna be a concern for wildfire activity because you can still have lightning and you're gonna have this warmer, drier stretch. But going back to that timeframe of around July 18th or 20th, What we see happening is the high that's shifting westward into the Great Basin will then pack its bags and head back to the east, back into the Southern Plains, going back into that Texas, Oklahoma region area there. And that's gonna open the door to that subtropical monsoon moisture flow again. So right around that third week of July and probably up, here we are talking about August already, believe it or not, (laughs) into early August. I do see a resurgence of that moisture coming back on in. Mm -hmm. So um, that's gonna be good for the Southwestern United States. Some of the Western High Plains, places like Eastern Colorado, Eastern New Mexico, um, parts of the areas along and east of the Continental Divide into the Rockies. And what we're we're gonna be looking at, I think, Justin, is as we get into that, that middle part of summer there, is whether or not we're going to see a significant dry area continue to stay dry. If we were to look at where the rain hasn't been falling um, over the last couple of weeks, it has been right underneath that high uh, in the Southern Plains, parts of Kansas, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Missouri, parts of North Texas. Um, That is the area that I think will get some relief from the heat. Um, and some precipitation as that high retrogrades westward, but may go into problems later in
0: July as that high goes back to the east. Okay. Let's kind of get an update on what's happening out in the Pacific. Uh, you, earlier this spring and early summer, we were seeing a lot of storms being propagated off of the shores of Alaska and down into the western side of Canada. That has changed a little bit, but we st- and then also as we drop fur- further south on the equator, La Nina pattern still showing very robust signs of being alive.
3: Yeah, it is and and while we have seen some weakening of it, which we expect in the peak of summer with the high sun angle on the equator, we still have a very large extensive area of cooler than average sea surface temperatures that go across the subtropical Pacific. It's a very large area of cool air, cool water there relative to the averages and that from everything we're seeing on the new modeling. We did get a new set of modeling data for the next uh, month and a half from the European modeling center that is basically showing that that La Nina through the rest of summer into early fall is gonna continue, in fact, maybe strengthen slightly as we get into August, September. The good news though, is we still see that trend further out in the forecast period of it weakening as we get into probably maybe as early as december but by certainly january and february so we still see that but this i tell you is going to be one for the books yeah uh, this La Nina, in terms of how long it's lasted
0: yeah it really has because i know early on as as we were anticipating or wanting it to be over last a year ago at this time it was you know we were talking well it looks like april may and then it was june july and now we're it just keeps just keeps hanging in there
3: Yeah, we'll call it the supply chain problem. (laughs) We'll just, the weather supply chain, we just keep delaying delivery of it, right? And that's, and you know, what's really interesting is uh, there was also a new data set that came out from the satellite that's been the longest, there's there's been satellite data of global temperatures going back to 1979. That's really the first year when we were able to monitor global temperature on a, on a, global basis using satellite data. And what's really interesting, if you were to look at the month of June in the tropics between 20 north latitude and 20 south latitude, it's one of the coldest periods since 1979 in that subtropical region of the the world. Um, The tropics, um, you know, you don't think of the tropics as a cold place Mm -hmm. and it's not a cold place, but relative to the 30 year averages, those temperatures near the equator, north and south of the equator have been very cool. And it's because of those sea surface temperatures cooling off the atmosphere there. And that really does impact things. Uh, Australia is going through one of its coldest June and early Julys in a long, long time. And, you know, we got to go back to 2002. when it was that cold. And voila, 2012 Mm -hmm. was the last multi-year La Nina.
0: Yep, yep. It's uh, interesting Interesting how that coincides. (laughs) Yeah,
3: the the correlation is pretty strong.
0: (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well, Don, thanks for joining us with a look at our long-term weather. Thank you, sir meteorologist Don Day with a look at our long-term weather his website is dayweather.com and I share that with you so that if you want to follow along every Monday through Friday morning for his video weather podcast that he kicks out you can do that by going to his website or also easily just go to YouTube and search day weather and you'll find his YouTube channel as well well stay with us we'll return in just a few moments on the Working Ranch Radio Show Thank you. Well, before we slam the gate on this episode of the Working Ranch Radio Show, I want to tell you what we are working on now. I'm not sure if I'll have it ready for next week's show or not, but it is something that we are working on. And it's some research is coming out that would provide ranchers with some early warnings for stocking decisions so that we don't get all the way into a drought and then find ourselves in a pickle. Well, there's uh, some, a lot of weather information, a lot of data out there that could be used. That's what we're exploring. We'll t- hope to bring that on an upcoming presentation program here of the working ranch radio show well our show is a production of working ranch magazine branded number one by america's ranchers if you'd like to start your subscription you can go to the website at workingranchmag.com and start today well we thank you for joining us here on our program where you'll find us each and every week at the same time and same place i'm your host justin mills and until next time keep your chin down and your mind in the middle so long